Thank you, Phil. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Renee Ritberger, and I am the Global Policy Area Coordinator for the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. We're always happy to partner with Global Minnesota to bring our students into important international conversations to engage, educate, and equip them with the skills necessary to play key roles in public life. In advance of the Humphrey Schools hosting a crisis negotiation exercise on the subject of Cyprus, we have the distinct honor of hosting Ambassador Kathleen Doherty. So it's my pleasure to introduce her. Ambassador Doherty from 2015 to 2019 served as the US Ambassador to Cyprus where she navigated complex international relations in a critical region to U.S. interests. Across her career, Ambassador Doherty has had her diplomatic journey take her across the world. She has served in embassies in Italy, Russia, Brazil, the United Kingdom, and Dominican Republic, not to mention all the work she has done in Washington, D.C. Her commitment to diplomacy and her unwavering dedication has been recognized with numerous accolades and awards. She has held senior leadership um, excuse me, as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Europe. She was honored with one of the State Department's highest awards for her exceptional work on relations between the United States and the European Union. She has also served as the Dean of the Foreign Service Institute, the premier training institution for our nation's diplomats. Throughout her career, she's championed democratic and economic reform, the empowerment of women, and engagement with youth. She currently works with the Women's Foreign Policy Group, advancing women's leadership across all levels of international affairs, something I think we can all agree is sorely needed in these times. Her work today as a board member for the American Academy of Diplomacy, as well as the Annenberg Foundation Trust in Sunnylands, further underscores her commitment to collaboration and building a better future. So, please join me in welcoming Ambassador Kathleen Doherty, a distinguished diplomat and a true advocate for international understanding and cooperation. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. It's really a great honor to be here in Minnesota. It's actually my first time to this state, which as I say somewhat embarrassingly, but I think I get a little street friends, as some people know that my husband, well, he was born in Washington State, his parents are from Minnesota, and uh, most of his relatives live in St. Cloud and Brenner and Rochester, so I know his mother's really happy that I'm here, and um, I actually wanted to see some cousins, so that was actually good. Um, keeping me busy, but thank you. So I do feel like I should have been here earlier, and I'm really happy to be here now. Uh, now, go ahead. So I'm putting up, we're putting up a map of Cyprus. I think it's important to see visually before we start. Um, uh, and I'm going to talk about uh, why Cyprus is important, the history of Cyprus, um, why it's important now, and why it's important also for potential conflicts and um, some of the challenges. When I was invited here several weeks ago, um, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean had not erupted into violence. And I know for many of us uh, in this room, the loss of minds and atrocities is weighing on everyone's mind. And as someone who's lived in the region, I am also really concerned about the potential spillover effects. Now, maybe I'll talk about that during the questions and answer period. But first, I'm here to talk about Cyprus. Cyprus is in the middle of a troubled neighborhood. The island is just over a few hundred miles from Israel, from Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And it's in the news these days because as a result of the hostilities in Israel and Gaza, hundreds of American citizens and others are traveling to Cyprus as the first safe haven before onward travel to other countries. In 2006, the U.S. evacuated 16,000 Americans from Lebanon through Cyprus. Cyprus is and has long been at the crossroads of history, and it has its own history of conflict. Cyprus is a divided island, separated into a Greek Cypriot part and a Turkish Cypriot part, and its capital, Nicosia, is the last divided capital of Europe. Cyprus's division has consequences for regional stability for NATO and the European Union, and for countries ranging from the United Kingdom to the United States, to Russia, to Israel, to Egypt, and to China. But let me share with you a bit of that history and what lessons that I've learned that might be useful for other contexts. Context. But let me start with going back. First, with a children's book. There's a children's book that's called The Island Everyone Wanted. 
It's all available on Amazon in Greek and in English. Um, but it tells the story of Cyprus, of all those who came to this island and who lived on this island. It is one of the oldest civilizations ever discovered, 13,000 years ago. A Greek city kingdoms, a Roman towns, and the gift of the island by Mark Anthony to Cleopatra. Of the Crusaders, Richard Lionheart got married in Cyprus. Of the Ottoman Empire, who took over the island in 1571 and ruled it for three centuries. Of the British, who made an agreement in 1878 with Turkey to administer the island while Cyprus remained under Turkish sovereignty. And of the year 1914, when Britain and Turkey became adversaries during World War I, the United Kingdom annexed the island. And two years later, Cyprus became a British crown colony. It really was the island of long life. In 1960, Cyprus granted gains in from Britain. As part of the nation's new founding documents, three countries were given the authority to preserve peace and stability in the functioning of the Cypriot state. Those three countries were the United Kingdom, Greece, and Turkey. These three countries were called the guarantors, which will come, will come to play later. The political system that before in 1960 was deeply flawed. In 1963, Turkish Cypriots walked out of the government, never to return. Tensions between the majority Greek Cypriot population and the majority Turkish Cypriot population rose, with episodic incidences of violence and killings. And with the certain violence in Cyprus, the United UN Security Council sent in UN troops in 1963, 60 years ago. They will be in there today, and it's the second longest UN peacekeeping mission in the world. Kashmir is the first. From 1964 to 1974, Greek Cypriots had sole control of the Republic of Cyprus in the United longest territory. Most Turkish Cypriots lived in enclaves protected by the UN. In 1974, the Greek military junta in Athens supported a coup against the Cypriot president, and replacing him with the Cypriot national support of the Gnosis, living with Greece. In the summer of 1974, citing the 1960 Treaty of Guarantee as the basis to defend Turkish Cypriots, <laughs> Turkey sent in tens of thousands of troops to the northern parts of Cyprus. And Turkish forces remained there after the American ceasefire, with a large number, perhaps up to 15,000, still present the bases today. The island became effectively partitioned, as you can see by this map, with an estimated 160,000 to 200,000 Greek Cypriots were, were displaced. Greek Cypriots who were living in the north were forced to leave and move to the south, and Turkish Cypriots living in the south were forced to move to the northern part of the island. Approximately 1% of the population was killed during almost 14 years of conflict, and about 2,000 persons remained missing. There were neighbors killing neighbors, of incidents of mass killings, of people thrown alive into wells, of all atrocities coming to war. A sparsely inhabited UN patrol buffer zone was runs west to east, and I will show you a few pictures of those in the master technology. Thank you. 
So, so that's, this is the early artwork. You'll see this bar wire. That's the um, abandoned plane on the tarmac in 1974. And these bullet holes made at that airline. That's the TVs you can see. You can walk through the abandoned TVs. Uh, it's a place, a very apocalyptic landscape. In some parts of the island, the two sides are literally separated by a few feet. For 30 years, no one can hold this division across into the other side. They were isolated from each other. Only in 2003, 30 years after the partition, were the first crossing points opened. And even today, there are only a few crossing points open. They were closed during COVID. The northern part of Cyprus, in 1983, declared independence, adopting the name the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. Only Turkey recognizes the TRC. This is important to know since the north of Cyprus is heavily dependent on financial support from Turkey. You can only trade with Turkey, and Turkey is the dominant player in this part of the island. I note here, even as ambassador, my status was ambiguous. Turkish Turkish did not consider me an ambassador, claiming their status as an independent country. When I got to the north, I was considered a very important person. I, never, I was never referred to officially by their name because that would imply recognition of their legitimacy as a country. They were very important people. We called each other your honorable. And when I traveled to the north, my big Cypriot police bodyguards could not help me, so an American colleague had to. From the 1970s to 2004, there were several attempts on the UN auspices to negotiate a resolution to Cyprus's division with the ultimate goal of a reunified country. In all these attempts, the goal was to keep the ethnic dimensions of each community, but under one sovereign state, they all failed. In 2004, the Republic of Cyprus joined the European Union. The EU body of laws were suspended, not applied to the North, and remained so until the date when solution was found. In 2004, the Iran plan, which was a plan based on proposals made by Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriots after several years of negotiations, was put to a referendum. To Cypriot people. 65% of Turkish Cypriots supported the agreement, and that resulted in the unification of Cyprus. Only 24% of Greek Cypriots did. The failure of the non plan was considered a significant setback to unification efforts. And nothing really happened until 2013, when newly elected Greek Cypriot and Turkish Cypriot leaders, under some pressure by the UN and other governments, agreed to start talks. They agreed the process had to be Cypriot-led at all stages, with UN facilitation and the involvement of the guarantor parties, Turkey, Greece, and the United Kingdom, only at key stages. I thought there shortly after the negotiations really started taking place in 2015. So let me tell you what the key issues were, and then here are some of the key issues that are reminiscent of other conflicts. The first key issue is political party. Political power. Would there be political equality of Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots in communities in a federated state? The UN Security Council resolution stipulated that unified Cyprus would be a bi-zonal, bi-communal federation. So what did political equality mean? One big question was who would be president? Would it be a Greek Cypriot or a Turkish Cypriot? Neither was acceptable to the other side. And then the Anon plan was going to be a rotating presidency. And Greek Cypriot for a couple years, and Turkish Cypriot for a couple of years. This is one of the issues that was never resolved. The other question would be who would live where? If under a single sovereign state, communities would largely be based on ethnicity, should Turkish Cypriots, who hold 37% of the island's territory, give up some of their territory based on their percentage of about 25% of the population? The exact percentage of what would be returned to Greek Cypriots was not a point of negotiation. The other question is who the rightful owner of that property would be, of the, of the territory that would return to Greek Cypriots. As I mentioned, tens of thousands of Greek Cypriots were forced to move to the south. Into the, in their homes, Turkish Cypriots moved into their homes and that they uh, encouraged more Turkish Cypriot officials. Now, the territory would return to Greek Cypriots. Who owns that property? The Greek Cypriots who lived there before 1974 and descendants, or the Turkish Cypriots who lived there for 50 years? That was also an unsolved. Security. The security framework for the Cyprus was the most sensitive and most disputed element. 
As I mentioned, there are tens of thousands of Turkish troops still on the island. Turkish agreement said, Turkish troops could be reduced in number in any agreement, but should remain for some unidentified time. They maintained that they needed this presence to ensure their security and safety were satisfied and then ensure that the federal government's function as intended and without an agreement. Turkey also insisted in keeping some troops there to some future date. Greek spirits said the troops had to go and had to go now. This dispute more than anything else led to the failure of the talks. The failure was an abrupt end to negotiations perceived as a best chance to redefine Cyprus, and the failure of many owners. The Soviet leaders, the Soviet people, Turkey, Greece, the United, and the International Committee. But let me talk about the International Committee, because this conflict is not just a conflict in Cyprus. There's one that involves other countries. The talks were held under the UN auspices. The UN Special Advisor gave a lot of advice to both parties, but they were not part of negotiations. Turkey, as I mentioned, is a guarantor country under the founding documents of Cyprus. Its major questions revolved whether it would continue to have some official role in Syrian affairs, and whether the Turkish troops, troops would stay there. They also cared about the tens of thousands of Turkish citizens that have moved to Cyprus in recent years. And in northern Cyprus, Turkish Cypriots are becoming a minority in their own area, as many more conservative Turks are living there. Um, I can talk a little bit about uh, uh, that Turkey is facilitating a more religious north, building religious schools, and building a large mosque there. So it's changing the character of the north. And Turkish Cypriots, remind you, are secular. They're a very secular society. They are not religious people, and they are not identified by Muslims. It's not a religious conflict, but there is becoming a religious part of the equation. Greece's position was, whatever guarantees service to be a normal state without intervention rights would be fine with them. The relationship between Turkey and Greece has always been a critical element in Cyprus negotiations, because any agreement needed to serve both states' national and international interests, and also their relationship to each other. The UK was one of the guarantor nations. And in the earlier map, I showed you the UK actually has sovereign territory in Cyprus. About 100 square miles is the United Kingdom. When you cross into the United Kingdom sovereign territory, my groups agree that this cannot go in the and it is, it is British law. The British have military bases there, and it's a, it's a central part of Britain's security posture in the Eastern Med. So now that you can imagine, in this country, in this island, it's two-thirds the size of Connecticut. You have a Greek Supreme Court, you have a Turkish Supreme Court, you have a buffer zone that the UN patrols that goes west to east, and you have 100 miles that belong to Britain. Extraordinarily complicated. There are four other Security Council members that also were involved. Because any agreement that came from service has to go to the United Nations Security Council for approval. So, Russia. Russia is publicly in support of an agreement, but many of us have had our doubts. Russia and Greek secrets have always had a long relationship. The Orthodox religion is one of them. But mostly, Russian officials really wanted to ensure that their island remained a welcoming place to the nearly 80,000 Russians who visited Cyprus every year. And tens of thousands of Russians who have moved to Cyprus, many of whom have benefited from the of Cyprus's generous citizenship regime. Cyprus is often called Moscow on the Mid. There was a 16-year-old term a couple of weeks ago about Russian influence on the island. There was a lot of speculation of which I believe that Russia played behind the scenes spoiler role, spoiler role in, the, in the agreement. So there's the United States. Throughout the years we've had special envoys. Richard Hooper was an envoy to Cyprus at one point. When I was there, we did not have a special envoy, and I was given the position of representing the United States. Uh, our role was really to be as neutral and honest broker as possible. We work in support of Bison by Global Federation, and that, was, that has been our main focus for the last 40 years. As the first US female ambassador, I made a particular point in speaking to women in both communities because it is well researched that women are part of the peace process. Peace process has a great chance of success. But as you mentioned, 
that before I built to Cyprus, it was an article in the Greek Supreme newspaper that the U.S. must not care about Cyprus since the U.S. was sending a female ambassador there. I said, since then, most major countries have sent female ambassadors to Cyprus. And I hope that the disruptive power of women will help this island move to a better future. But what would I do? I would give pep talks and people would get discouraged. But I was careful. I could not want the agreement more than Cypriots themselves. I was not Cypriot. I sometimes felt like a therapist, or I'd say a marriage counselor, as I would hear the grievances of one side or the other, and I'd try to give a reality check about their unrealistic expectations. The talks at high level address attention. In one of his last official acts as vice president, Joe Biden, day before the 2017 presidential inauguration, called the two Soviet leaders urging them to overcome the mess that had recently emerged. So let me tell you why we should care about Cyprus. It's a small island in the eastern end, two-thirds the size of Canada. Two couple of reasons, NATO-EU. Since Turkey does not recognize the Republic of Cyprus, Turkey prevents or limits all meetings between NATO and EU officials. This has blocked NATO-EU cooperation on critical national security issues. The Cyprus problems problem also complicates the relationship between Turkey and Greece, both NATO members. It is no longer a flashpoint of tensions as it was in 1974, but the potential is always there. The EU and Turkey. The Republic of Cyprus and other EU members have blocked opening up chapters for Turkey's EU accession. Until the Cyprus issue, Turkey will not be a member. Until the Cyprus issue is resolved, Turkey is unlikely to be a member of the EU. So, what has happened since 2017? I left in 2019 with the talks in 2017 failed. The hardline pro-Turkey uh, leader was elected in the north. And he has come out said there needs to be a two-state solution. We've heard those words before. An internationally recognized north and an internationally recognized republic of Cyprus that is not a position the United States supports this north. Anyone in the UN or the EU will support that. What has happened is that he's encouraged. There's this town called Rosha uh, in the northern part of Cyprus that was a Greek Cypriot town. And it had been abandoned as tens of thousands of Cypriots fled in 1874 the approach uh, of Turkish troops. This town is, is being developed in violation of U.S. Security Council resolutions at the behest of Turkey. So tensions have begun to rise. There's been a recent attack on U.S. troops by some Turkish Cypriots. So what have I learned? What have I learned from this conflict? Well, 50 years is a long time. Generations have grown up hard. They don't know each other. There have been Cypriots of a certain age, those 70 years and older, remember a time when they lived together. It may have been not tension-free, obviously, there were never killings in the 60s and stuff, but there never a time when it was one country. People under the age of 70 have no idea. There's been a not enough confidence building measures of people to people contact. There's been a little. It took us seven years to negotiate an agreement to allow cell service, cell phone service, to be operable in the whole island. Uh, if you're a Greek Cypriot going to the north, your cell phone will work. And if you're a Turkish Cypriot going to the south, your cell phone will work. You're separated by three feet in some parts, and your cell phones will work. Uh, there was no real political leadership. I, I do feel that it takes an enormous amount of courage to break with the past. And while there's been some very good efforts, there's no strong political leadership. I think the stakes were not high enough for Greek secrets. They're already in the EU. Many of them perceived that the Turkish ship economy would be more trouble than it's worth, and it's not part of the EU. There were fear, there's continued fear of continued Turkish influence in the and increased conservative Islamic nature of the North. The status quo is comfortable, though emotions and tensions still run high. The Turkish Shipyards, I fear, are in a lose-lose position. They are becoming a minority and a minority as a minority in the island of Cyprus, as more Turks move to the island. There's too little and too much involvement of foreign actors. The EU, in my opinion, could have done more to bring sides together, 
that even officials were fearful of crossing lines with the fellow EU member state in the Republic of Cyprus. We must have done more. We had just a month of a continental election, and Cyprus was not a priority. Turkey and Greece also had to open to this two problems. Um, there was the attempted coup in Turkey, which made the hardline parallel even more hardline. And Russia continues to have a disruptive influence in the island. I would like to stop by saying that to me, Cyprus is an incredibly special place. I had the opportunity to travel to many places in the island. And I believe it was struck by its beauty, the hospitality, the histories, and the richness of what I would say is the unique Syrian culture. So I'll stop there. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. So thank you, Pastor Gary, for, uh, for that, that talk. Uh, this is going to work really well. The more questions uh, you send up to me, because I want to make sure that all of you get your questions answered tonight. Uh, I'm going to start off with uh, just a quick request. You mentioned the 60 minutes uh, piece that was on what, a month and a half ago, I guess now. Uh, could you tell a little bit more in detail about Russian influence uh, in Cyprus? Yeah. Um, so, as, is mine working? I don't. Yes? Okay. So, as I mentioned, um, even before Cyprus became a member of the European Union, low empire. Oh, yeah, thank you. Um, Cyprus was a member of the non aligned movement. If you remember those old Cold War warriors, that was all the countries who were neither west nor east, but were part of friendlies with the Soviet Union. And a lot of Russian, a lot of Cypriots of a certain age studied in the Soviet Union. And the second largest political power in Cyprus is the, is the Cypriot Communist Party. And when I would go into the office of the leader, they had the hammer and sickle still on being displayed. Kind of surreal. Um, and, uh, but Cyprus, uh, about 10 years ago, many of you might recall that it was this huge economic crisis in the EU. And a lot of it, uh, Greece and Cyprus were uh, probably the lead problem children in this sense. And one of it, it was the Russian money that was in Cyprus. Russia, uh, Cyprus has been uh, welcoming Russian money and Russian investment. Some of it's good, some of it not good money. Um, they've been very generous in giving citizenship for a certain amount of investment of $2 million. Uh, a lot of Russians have taken advantage of it, and uh, the, both the EU has actually um, condemned Cyprus and Malta and, and a few other countries in, this, in the EU that have given citizenship for a little bit of money without doing criminal checks and things like that. So the 60 Minutes piece was about uh, how global sanctions against Russian officials are a little bit less effective because they are still able to uh, find safe havens in places like Cyprus. Some of the oligarchs that have been sanctioned um, or denied visas from the U.S. are perceived. Some of them had Cypriot citizenship, and Cyprus has been criticized for being slow in revoking that citizenship. So Russia has a very large um, influence. Russia has a there's a political party in Cyprus. It's a Russian political party. There are Russian newspapers, uh, Russian radio stations. So one of my challenges um, was to counteract Russian influence there. And I had served in Russia. Um, that was one of my career, uh, one of my postings. And so I tried to uh, use my uh, ability to, to counteract some of the mythology. Though it was challenging, the Cypriots would put ambassadors together by uh, alphabetical order in English, and so you had Ukraine, you had Ukraine, United States, and Russia, and we would sit next to each other, and that was always very lovely moments. Um, <laughs> and the uh, United Kingdom at that point had not left the EU, and if they had, that would have been good, because at that point, I would have had them next to me. But uh, it was always, and we also had Iran. So Cyprus, um, I should say, this is also important to know for Cyprus. Cyprus has relations with Iran, has relationship with Palestine, a Palestinian authority, it has relations with multiple Gulf countries now. Uh, it's a it's trying to be a player in the Eastern Med, which is might be problematic given current conflict. Yeah, and, and I think uh, part of that sixty minutes piece uh, was really focusing in on, on the sanctions on Russian oligarchs uh, just since the invasion. Of That's right. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions, the first question that came in actually via email already was. Uh, you touched on it briefly, but um, 
What role should the EU be playing in your view? I mean, specifics. What should they be trying to do to, to bring some sort of? Well, one of the concerns, um, and I think it was legitimate concern, that the Turkish Cypriot economy was not ready to be part of the EU. And there was a discussion does the northern part of Cyprus automatically become a EU, part of the EU when it becomes unified? Um, it's not a country, so it should. I mean, the question is, in day one, is it a EU state? Well, it is, but then the Turkish Cypriot economy is not competitive, it has not been developed, and it's highly dependent on Turkish money and Turkish budgetary support. So the Greek Cypriots would say, well, we're, it's kind of like the West Germany, East Germany analogy. We're inheriting a problematic, weak economy, and we're gonna suffer from it. The EU gave some technical assistance to the North when the, when the talks were going well, assistance happened. When talks were not going well, uh, the Republic of Cyprus stopped a lot of that assistance. Um, I think it, it is a compelling case that to say that there is a disparity between the two economies, and it would be something that needs to be addressed. The EU was a, is is it's an awkward position for EU leaders. I do think Germany could have played a more of a role. They understand what it's like to take on an economy that's not on power. Um, but they didn't. It's a tough issue. What about, what about NATO? Yeah, so, you know, this is my my theory and shared by some. Uh, one of the reasons why Russia would never be supportive of a unified Cyprus, because a unified Cyprus would have some relationship with NATO. Cyprus cannot have, not cannot participate in NATO exercises. It cannot participate in partnership with peace. Um, as a, a divided island. Uh, the longer it stays divided, the less likely to ever be part of NATO. Uh, obviously, NATO expansion is an issue we don't talk about. It's so complicated these days, but um, even being able to participate in, in any kind of military activities is prohibited by this. So in my, in my mind, in the eyes and the mind of many, Russia would never um, either actively or behind the scenes, uh, we'll be working to prevent any agreement. One of the things that were uh, struck by in your in your comments was uh, the critical role that Erdogan himself entered into place yeah. over so much of yeah. the issues with with Cyprus. And as I sort of watched, we do have a former U.S. ambassador to Turkey here, although we're not going to call him right now. <laughs> but uh, you know, Turkey has always been a really strong leader. Uh, Erdogan has sort of uh, refocused some of Turkey's foreign policy in the Middle East uh, and, and Northern Africa. Um, the, the discussion that you commented on about so many Turks moving uh, to the northern part of the island and the influence that they're having, do, do you see us like a, a coordinated strategic plan on Erdogan's part for Cyprus? No, I think it's it's stumbling from one. I mean, they, I, Erdogan does give some kind of favorable tax treatment to get people moving to the northern part of Cyprus uh, and a lot of Turkish citizens. And you do see the change in the demographics of the population uh, becoming much more conservative. Um, many more women in uh, headscarves. Uh, these mosques are being built, uh, very large mosques are being built. And it's really distorting the what I call a unique Turkish Cypriot culture and that I think should be celebrated, but unfortunately it's being lost a bit. Um, you know, Turkey, there's, there'll be a lot of dispute, and you, depending on who you ask, you can see whether Turkey was ever going to be uh, agreeable in the negotiations, really wasn't going to admit to uh, some troops to leave or not. What happened in 2017, as you may, many of you remember, there was an attempted coup in, in Turkey, and that, I think, ruined any chance for an agreement, because um, Erdogan became much more hardline. He was already hardline, but I think that what happened in when I was in Cyprus, um, the Turkish Cypriot leader um, was of the generation of the 70s. He had actually grown up in the south. Uh, he grew up in the same town as the Greek, the Greek Cypriot leader. They did not know each other, but that goes to show you how that generation, um, he tried to keep his independence from Turkey as much as he could. The current Turkish Cypriot leader is avowedly um, pro-Turkey. So it does change the dynamics a lot. So one of the questions we had uh, was about the sort of breakthrough between North, North Macedonia and, and, and Greece. Uh, is that model, uh, the question here is sort of, does that model work for the 
harder because it is a culturally and linguistically different uh, part of the island. Whereas Macedonia, North Macedonia, um, there is much more of the same ethnic composition. Uh, I do think we had hoped that energy issues would be um, uh, an incentive to uh, reunification. When I was there, um, there was a big field, uh, gas field discovered off the coast of Egypt. Uh, a lot of the same type of topography is in Cyprus. Uh, it's on a big bit. There's a lot of uh, big players developing the gas fields of Cyprus. Um, it became an issue, uh, rather than an, an incentive for unification, it became uh, a point of division. At one point, Turkey blocked uh, an Italian company from doing some exploratory drilling. Uh, things got pretty hot. Um, so, you know, this is, and people say, this is not a conflict, people call this a frozen conflict. I say it's not frozen and it's not a conflict. Um, which means it's this kind of weird status quo that there is a potential for it, for erupting. I think it's hard. I do think Cypriots don't want conflict. I, I, I do believe they, they, they want to live in peace. Whether they want to live together in one island and one sovereign entity, probably most people at this point would not say that because um, people want their land back. They want to have a unified Cyprus. But I do think after 50 years, it becomes a very difficult concept for Cypriots to even conceive of, of having a reunified Cyprus. 50 years is, a, is generations, two generations. Um, yeah. So we mentioned banking is a big industry in Cyprus, uh, oil and gas. What other Tourism is a big industry. And again, this is, you think it's an easy issue that should bring the island together. But uh, Northern Cyprus would be is a competitor of Southern Cyprus in terms of uh, tourism. It's not as developed yet, so the beaches are more pristine in the north. And there is concern that uh, if it ever became reunified and more people would travel to the north. As right now, a lot of Russians are going to the north, a lot of Israelis are going to the north and discovering the, tour the tourism there. Uh, it's so it's it's becoming an issue. It's not something that would bring the country together. It's actually dividing it. Um, tertiary education is becoming big in Cyprus. Uh, it has an excellent. The Republic of Cyprus has an excellent healthcare system. So some uh, healthcare tourism, not tourism, but yeah, um, and weddings. <laughs> As I said, uh, it's a. If you are a reformed Israeli or a secular Israeli, you cannot get married in Israel. Um, you, so there are a lot of Israelis who get married in Cyprus, and there are a lot of Russians who get married in Cyprus, um, so it's a big winning destination. <laughs> Could you also mention the, uh, that the United Kingdom has, has a military there? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the role that Cyprus, the, the island, and what it brings to the Eastern Mediterranean, the impact that it's had on strategic issues in, in the area? Right, so as I mentioned, Britain does have sovereign territory, and it's, it's, it was part of the founding documents of Cyprus. It's that in perpetuity, this would be UK territory. Now, the UK was willing to give up some of its territory if there was a reunified Cyprus, but not all its territory. And it is a major uh, strategic location for military assets of the UK for the Middle East. So it's, it's, it's there floating military base, basically. Uh, you know, when I was ambassador there, and I, I, um, I said, we changed our relationship with, the, uh, with Cyprus when I was ambassador. Toward the end of my time, I said, we have to look at Cyprus in two ways. One, as a divided island, as a non-frozen, frozen conflict, but also Cyprus as the easternmost part of the European Union, or the westernmost part of the, part of the Middle East. And if you were to pick a, you know, aircraft carrier, and put it in the middle of the eastern region, put it where Cyprus is, because of its location. So I made the recommendation to the United States that we develop an independent of the division issue, a strategic partnership with Cyprus, Republic of Cyprus, I should say. Um, and one of my recommendations was that we would lift the arms embargo um, that we had on Cyprus since 19 since 1974 that we would exchange military, military activities, which we have done 
that when we do some military joint exercises, which we are doing, that we would create this center for uh, refugee processing. And I should mention that Cyprus has the second highest population of refugees per capita in any country in the EU, uh, because it is an island and it's very close to Syria, Jordan, Lebanon. Uh, they get stuck on the island. Um, it's also an issue between the north and the south because a lot of them will come to the north and they'll cross through the buffer zone. The buffer zone is patrolled by UN troops, but as I said, it's about 100 miles west to east. There's only a couple thousand UN troops. So it's very porous and, uh, and it's an issue because people are coming into Cyprus on both sides of the island who may or may not be legitimate refugees. So one of the other questions that we have uh, mentions the fact that uh, borders are important, yes. especially in diplomacy. Uh, Turkey invaded Cyprus, uh, so why not call it an invasion? <laughs> Thank you for that question. <laughs> that was part of my Senate hearing, too. Uh, so, we, don't know, we do not use that word, and I will not say that word, even though I'm sure some people here would want me to say that word. Um, there are many reasons why, at the time, this is 1974, when it occurred, uh, that it would have apparently triggered a number of U.S. actions that we were not prepared to do against Turkey, if we called it that. Um, uh, so we do not call it that word, and I, as I said, even though I'm a retired diplomat, uh, uh, we call it intervention, actions, uh, incursion, uh, but apparently it is a legal word. There is, words are extraordinarily important in Cyprus, as they are anywhere. And there was um, the OSCE, brought together journalists from both sides um, of the island to come up with a glossary of words that trigger emotions on the other side. And they worked really diligently and, and it was put out and both sides, the journalists on both sides were excoriated by government officials on both sides. But they said, by even naming these names and naming these words, You've given these words credibility, even though it was just a glossary of saying this word would trigger some emotion on my part. Uh, uh, so it is one, it's a landmine, it's a verbal landmine. Uh, and Cyprus says it in many places, but uh, it was particularly problematic or challenging in Cyprus. So you, you bring up uh, journalism. Yeah, I think you know, a lot of us in this room remember a time when journalists reported on the facts, they didn't spend a lot of time. Positing their own opinions about things. Uh, some of the best news, are, are news sources that are out there, still focus on the facts. But when it comes to news on the island in, in across Cyprus, are there news outlets that you that we would you might recommend everybody to turn to for fact-based reporting? No. <laughs> no. On either side. Again, the parallels with the rest of the conflicts that are going on in the world. There are many. Um, you know, the education systems uh, make the other the enemy uh, on both sides. Um, there, there was the, one of the math books in the Republic of Cyprus uh, uses an analogy that by Turkish Cypriots demonized the Turkish Cypriots in a math book. And the why do you have to have a math book that becomes political? Uh, the Turkish Cypriot side does exactly the same. Um, they both use emotional words to trigger a reaction from the other side. Um, and, uh, and it's very much embedded in mentality. Uh, and there's an amazing amount of distrust besides. That said, I don't want to give the impression thousands of Turkish Cypriots and Greek Cypriots go back and forth. I was just there about a month ago for the first time in five years, and I was struck by how many Turkish Cypriots come to the south to go shopping, and how many Turkish Cypriots go to the north because things are cheaper there. And they go to the barber shops, and they go. So it's not like it's they're so isolated. It's just it's more of a utilitarian relationship rather than any kind of sense of a community developing. So you mentioned uh, people on both sides of the line there who are seventy-ish remember a time very different. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I think we're finding is that the younger generations, uh, people who are among you know, 20, 25, uh, they live in the in a truly globalized world, the way they view things, uh, and they're so connected across the internet. Do you see differences in generations as far as uh, attitudes towards the bifurcation? Yeah, my, my experience is the most younger 
Greek Cypriots were even more against unification than their parents or grandparents. They saw nothing in it because they already had the benefits of being an EU country and then the mobility. Turkish Cypriots, strangely enough, um, if your parents are Turkish Cypriot, uh, you can get an EU passport because the North is not considered an independent country. So the younger generation of Turkish Cypriots, who are not nationalistic in their minds, and they're, they're not so nationalistic, they will get a Republic of Cyprus passport and they can work and live in the EU. So it's messy because, um, and again, I remember being there the first week, first week I was doing an economy, I was a keynote speaker at the Economist, and a young woman stood up and she was 22 and she said, Ambassador, explain to me why I should care about a unified Cyprus. She said, my parents are from the South, we lost no territory, we lost no lives, um, I'm 22, I can work anywhere in the EU, why should I care? I didn't really have a good answer for her. I had a decent answer, but why should I tell her the answer? It really should be Cypriots telling Cypriots why they should care. Um, at the end of the day, um, you know, for her, for a lot of Cypriots on both sides, when they lost their property or they lost 2,000 lives, it's significant in a country, and they're still finding remnants and remains of people. The UN has a committee of missing persons, and the US gives a lot of money. And going to the lab that I went to when you saw fragments of people's, uh, of people, how can you not get upset? And this is what you're seeing today. How can you not see the emotion and the humanity and loss of territory and loss of lives? Uh, you don't ever get over that. But I think younger Cypriots, when we think about our parents or our grandparents of the World War II generation, it seems like ancient history. And I think for a lot of young Cypriots, it's ancient history. So you talked about you know, everyone sort of giving some incentives for terms to move to Let's extract it. What's the long-term impact here? Personally, I'm worried, for, I'm worried about Turkish Cypriots. Uh, I worry that they will be subsumed by uh, a conservative, a more conservative culture, and uh, that they become really homeless people. Uh, they might still physically live in Cyprus, but they will become a minority in their own minority part of the country. And, you know, uh, as I said, Turkish Cypriots are Cypriot. They've been there for 500 years or more. Um, but they're going to be, well, so I'm, I'm sobered by the prospects. Uh, I do, as I said, Russia plays on both sides of the island now. We see it as a strategic partner. This is all different. China is investing a lot in Cyprus. Um, Iran has a presence in Cyprus. So now it's not just a Cypriot issue, but it's becoming a, a kind of a geopolitical issue that complicates resolution. If we read further and extrapolate, I mean, if more and more conservative Turks move to the northern part of the island, uh, does this mean a greater likelihood of conflict or less? Uh, good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's hard to predict. I think also what happens and I say this, uh, Northern Cyprus is also to make money, has been creating a lot of uh, storefront universities and encouraging people from other countries to go to university in the north. But it's, their university is only accredited by, accredited by Turkey, but you have tens of thousands of North Africans, uh, other um, uh, students from Muslim, uh, majority Muslim countries now living in the north. Uh, so you, it's a very different demographic perspective, and I said the Turkish Cypriots are disappearing, and I think that's very sad. Um, it's a real, it's a, it's un, I think an unintended consequence of the failed negotiations. So you mentioned sort of the complexity of uh, the EU, the difficulty that the EU has as sort of uh, trying to broker a deal. Same thing with NATO. Mm -hmm. uh, are there other countries around the world, uh, maybe not necessarily in Europe, uh, that, that kind of serve as a bit of a broker uh, between the two sides here? Well, I thought it was very moving when I was there. Um, the Irish actually brought together, um, brought some of the women who were very active in the uh, Good Friday Agreement process about the role of women and the political, uh, how they played a political, uh, political parties, their bow. 
I do say, um, again, uh, Cyprus and both sides of the island, women are not as powerful as they should be. Uh, when I would talk to women on both sides, they talked about security in very different manners. Uh, Greek Cypriot women talked about Turkish troops and their fear of Turkish troops, and Turkish Cypriot women were fear about just their own personal safety, vulnerability. Uh, that needed to be part of the discussion, and women's voices were not heard and still aren't really heard, and I thought the experience of Northern Ireland could have been applicable. Another very moving moment was when um, two South Africans came to Cyprus. One was an African and one was an ANC member, and the ANC member had killed the cousin of the African, and he'd been in jail for 20 years. And when Mandela was released, he was also released, and uh, he became part of Mandela's negotiating team. The African became one of de Klerk's negotiating members. And basically we're told with the rest of the negotiating teams, do not leave until you have an agreement. And the African said, when he first found out that he was going to be sitting across the table with the person who had murdered his cousin, he said, I, I just was not physically able to do it. But he also really has no choice. And so they came to Cyprus to talk about the African said, I do not forgive the guy from ANC for killing my cousin. I do not like him. I don't even respect him because this is what he because he showed no remorse. But he said, for the sake of my country, South Africa, I had to have an agreement. And this is what I was charged with. And that really resonated with me because I don't know if I could sit next to someone and make an agreement. They saw the cause of South Africa bigger than their own individual trauma and stories and death. Uh, I think that's extraordinarily hard and to talk about contemporary conflicts. I don't see the trauma of what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, I mean Ukraine by Russia and in Israel and Gaza. The trauma that people are going through right now, I do not see how you overcome it at some point to have some agreement that's greater than your own individual trauma. Uh, you mentioned uh, sort of the views that some of the youth in Cyprus have, since they are union members. Do right. you see uh, kind of a lot of kids leaving? Yes, there's okay. a big brain drain. Cyprus is small. I mean, it's it's two thirds the size of Connecticut, and you know you can only have so many hotels, <laughs> and they're not high paying jobs. Um, there's a bit of a um, they're trying to create some financial services. But financial services company do worry about Cyprus's reputation of uh, being Moscow on the mid, and so there is a bit of a reluctance. Uh, some, some very few American companies are there, and that's what I was often confronted when, when I would try to encourage uh, Cypriots to be less dependent on Russian and Russian money. They'd say, "Well, show us the American money," and uh, and. You know, I'd say Cyprus is far away, and why would an American company move to Cyprus? Um, and uh, so I was at a disadvantage because I didn't have, I couldn't show them the money, and money does talk in a lot of places. Yeah. Do we have any other uh, questions from, from the audience? Uh, we want to bring them to the front. I want to make sure that your questions are being asked. Yes, we're good. I was actually struck by that too. Um, and I think there's two couple things happened. During COVID, the crossing points were closed. Um, and again, there's different interpretations of why it was closed, but they were closed. And so people didn't have that contact for two or three years. I think people really missed it. 
to be honest with you. When I'm hearing from my Cypriot friends on both sides, they miss that contact. Uh, there are a lot more um, from the ground up, people to people. People have kind of given up in respect of governments, and I say government in the north, realizing it's not an independent country, but government elected officials in the north. They're kind of given up on them, so they're just doing it themselves. And that gives me hope. I don't know if it'll ever be enough to reunify the country, but it might ensure that this conflict stays frozen and that it doesn't ever erupt into any kind of violence. I was uh, women are getting more and more empowered, um, which I think is, is great. Uh, um, I'll take a little credit in it, but it's really just, just really starting to take off. And I think that's great. Um, it won't work unless the Cypriot people themselves do it. Cyprus is one of the last countries 
to agree to any kind of EU sanctions. It takes a lot of EU pressure on Cyprus to impose sanctions on Russia because they're afraid of this relationship um, uh, of jeopardizing this financial partnership or relationship they have with Russia. So if you, if you approve EU sanctions on oligarchs and the oligarchs have their money in Cyprus, there goes that money. And so uh, Cyprus is, um, is off, almost always the last holdout. And in fact, when the EU was trying to put uh, sanctions on Russia over Ukraine, it took a lot of work in Brussels to move Cyprus to agree to it. So one of the things uh, that has come up uh, with, with the conflict in Ukraine is that uh, sanctions are on shipping uh, in and out of, of, of Russia and whatnot. And uh, uh, Elizabeth Braun, who's a uh, former journalist, uh, does write occasionally for foreign policy, and uh, she's now uh, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, recently wrote a piece talking about Greek shipping magnates selling excess cargo ships to the Russians so that they could sort of beat some of the sanctions. Does Cyprus play much of a role in the shipping industry? It, it's merging, but this becomes complicated because uh, Turkey won't, doesn't recognize the Republic of Cyprus, so any Cypriot flat ships can't dock in Turkey, uh, which also means any Russian ships that have a Cypriot flag can't dock in Turkey, and Turkey is the largest market in the Eastern Mid. So uh, again, this, I, when there's a student here who's studying international law um, and uh, law of the seas is you know, one of those things that become extraordinarily difficult when you're negotiating uh, gas field delineation, you know, the lines between Israel and Lebanon, um, the lines between Turkey and Greece, who owns the sea, if anyone owns the sea, Cyprus and Egypt, um, and wars with wars of fought over this. And uh, the flag ship, the issue of ship, separate flag ships is a problem. Yeah. 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 So I was going to have a little bit about the, you know, the Israel-Gaza conflict is is beyond my ability to actually talk about because I think the atrocities are so great for all of us. We just don't even know how to respond. What I am worried about is the spillover effect um, and. Uh, I did mention in 2006 when Israel-Lebanon tensions heated up and there was a, you know, a minor conflict that led to the evacuation of 16,000 Americans through Cyprus. There is the chain reaction concern um, and Lebanon is already an enormously fragile, weak country um, with a significant influence of Hezbollah. Uh, you know, Jordan has the highest level of Palestinian refugees, um, it's the home of an enormous amount of Palestinian refugees. So you can think about Lebanon and Jordan being on the uh, edge right now. Uh, obviously Syria is still a conflict, even though it's been out of the near. So you just start seeing the spill over the domino effect, and, and that could be pretty horrific for the world. Um, and I do think, uh, you've seen what President Biden's been doing, what UN officials are trying to do, and the British Prime Minister is trying to say is, don't want to contain, not contain what's going on in Israel because that's a separate issue. Do not let it spill over because we can end up seeing uh, a regional conflict that becomes a global conflict, and that would be um, something that all of us try to want to avoid. Uh, so before we close up tonight, yeah. uh, I'm going to ask one last question uh, before before everybody goes home. Yeah. Two or three things that you really want to make sure they hear from yeah. you. Uh, you cannot ignore the past. Um, I do think one of the problems with Cyprus is that um, there was no, no reconciliation process, no looking back. Um, you can say it was flawed. It's flawed in other countries. South Africa did a so-so job. North Ireland has done a so-so job. But there's been no effort in Cyprus to look at what actually happened in the 60s and 70s, what really transpired. Um, even though there's been a call out to um, Cypriots who are in the 80s who are dying, to ask them to say, we're all missing people. Um, a lot of people were eyewitnesses to some of the mass killings, and a few have come forward, but not enough. So when people are, don't know where their loved ones are for 1,800 1, to 2,000 missing people, that there's no closure. And even though they all know their people are dead, they want closure. 
And so you have to encourage people to be courageous and talk about what happened. Um, uh, you have to have people-to-people -people contact, and it goes back to your question. The only thing that I'm feeling encouraged about in Cyprus is this grassroots grooming people-to-people -people contact. Is it enough? Probably enough, but is it enough to prevent a conflict? Yes, and that's encouraging. Um, and uh, courage, I mean, that's that elusive concept of political courage uh, um, that I don't know how you get to that point where you have political courage, but that's what's really sorely lacking in almost every conflict that we're talking about right now. Ambassador Hurry, thank you so much for that. Yeah, thank you.